Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Ambassador Samantha Power. She is the fourth guest in our special series called Women on Top, which is all made possible by our friends at Banana Republic. The most interesting businesses are born out of curiosity. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978 by two California creatives with adventurous spirits. Last fall, we partnered with a team at Banana Republic to celebrate curiosity by talking with women who are redefining what it means to be powerful and brave. And we're very excited to be back for a second series. I hope you love listening to these conversations as much as I love having them. And I know you'll be deeply inspired by these women. So please keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To see our favorites from their spring collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Samantha Power is a diplomat, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and formerly served as the 28th United States Ambassador to the United Nations under President Barack Obama. I just read her memoir, The Education of an Idealist, and loved it. I felt very honored to have this conversation with her. Today, Power and I talk about something called shrinking the change. We talk about the power of empathy and driving that change, and we talk about the power women have to solve major policy issues, and that it's necessary for women everywhere to be politically involved. Power asks, how do we get our voices heard? And maybe more importantly, how can we all listen better? Finally, Ambassador Power shares how using the tools of public policy can improve lives. She wants us to know that even if we can't change the world, we may have the power to change many individual worlds. And today, we'll learn where to start. The one thing that that works better than anything in fostering a sense of unity and in causing party identification to fade is shared works and is service. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, I'm a big believer in community service. I, I wish it were something that, you know, that more people in our in our communities had the chance to to participate in. Let's get to my conversation with Ambassador Samantha Power. Thank you for your book. I settled into it thinking I was going to get an education on diplomacy and foreign policy, and it was certainly that. But then I also... I was like, I'm. We're the same person. I'm sure you're hearing that all over the place <laughs> from every from lots of diff very different people. It turns out, <laughs> like when you at the beginning when you talk about your anxiety and you talk about lungers, I was like, oh. is that, 
Are you a hyper? Are you a chronic hyperventilator? Is no, that what see, it is? No, it's different. It's it's constriction, so it, it doesn't have surface manifestations. I know it's lungers can be. It can go a lot of different directions. It's your lungs, but for me, it was. It's just the sense that you just you kind of can't get enough air, and you and you can't breathe fully. So you yawn. You try to sigh and, and kind yeah. of take in air in other ways. So I don't know. Does that count as hyper, hyperventilation? That's, I associate with more kind of, you know, breathing rapidly and no, um, it's chronic yeah. hyperventilation because I have to. I do the exact same thing, and my dad's actually a pulmonologist, and I've been to. I have subtle asthma, and yeah, it's your your body believes it's not getting enough oxygen, and so you're overbreathe. Yes, and then it for me it lasts it can last for months of the yawning sighing cycle it's exhausting it's terrible and unfortunately it comes back when you talk about it so thanks oh i'm sorry <laughs> no, thanks so much thank you uh, the one thing that has helped me is not overly caffeinating myself after oh. yeah so anyway but then i was you know in the in the context of the rest of the book so much of it, as a fellow working mom, clearly not, not quite the same hours as, your, as you pulled. I loved, too, the conversation about Maria mm. and how essential she was to your 14-hour days. Yeah, I mean, I think too often we don't make visible, you know, all that lies behind our sometimes seemingly effortless juggling acts, and they're never effortless. They're always effortful. They're usually graceless in all kinds of ways, you know, when you're living it yourself as a, as a working parent, but then the people you rely on to make it happen and who, you know, everyone talks about the sacrifice of the public servant and being in national security at high levels and people are so generous and thanking you for your service. And Maria doesn't get thanked, you know, when she walks down the street and she's the one who... She left her kids and her grandkids to to come be and live with my family in New York uh, after being with us for four years in Washington. So I, I, again, to give texture to what is actually going on, I think it's enlightening for for people who only see what comes out of the black box, if you know what I mean. So yeah, no, absolutely. Important. And it, yeah, it's all of that invisible and essential labor and. I think, I can't remember exactly what you said in the book, but essentially it was something like Maria, like your your children, by having this other person who loved them, like that they, they're some of their most redeeming qualities came from her. And I feel very much the same about my life. Yeah, and, and that just means we're lucky and we, we've hit the jackpot, but, but even just the care industry, I mean, just the number of us who are able to work because we have people who are taking care of our parents or our kids, mm -hmm. you know, it just makes, it makes all the difference. Yeah. So in the making of the book, it seems like it was clearly sort of a statement of your legacy and probably clarifying for people who didn't necessarily know what was happening inside, but like a, a the revelation of what was in your heart. And it was fascinating insight into all of it, diplomacy, journalism, but w and it also seemed like an act of therapy. Like what, what was the main motivating force for writing it? I think my impression since I left government in January 2017 when Trump took over is that I am surrounded by people who 
are activated in some way in their hearts, but are often held back by a feeling of being small in the world mm. and, and not having sufficient agency or power to make the change that they wish would happen and make the change they seek. And and so I think what I what I sought to do was less, you know, frankly, about my legacy or Obama's legacy or, or things that were would be dated, but more I tried, I don't know if I succeeded, but but I hope I succeeded in in kind of telling a more enduring story where unfortunately or fortunately I happen to be the character and the vehicle for it, but basically about caring and trying in the world, Mm -hmm. getting a bruising every now and then, getting up, trying to adapt and trying to apply lessons and trying to be effective against a backdrop of problems that really can feel daunting. And so my, my ideal reader you know, is is not somebody who's going to go into government or foreign policy or even necessarily a working parent, although I appear to have a lot of those readers, luckily, <laughs> but more just people who who feel that kind of conundrum or that internal struggle between, you know, kind of knowing that the world should be different and and softer and that there should be more looking out for one another, but being busy and juggling a lot of stuff and not having a whole lot of confidence that one can make a difference and yet still kind of wanting to put one foot forward and trying. And so so in a sense, whether I'm in a war zone, you know, where I hope most of my readers aren't going to end up or in the situation room, you know, in the White House, in a way those venues are almost just like backdrops for for these larger questions, which I think are a little more universal. Yeah. And and highly individual. It's like that Richard Holbrook quote, blaming the UN for a crisis is like blaming Madison Square Garden when the New York Knicks play badly, you're blaming a building. Like I think sometimes we forget, like we get overwhelmed by the size of these systems and then, and the, without remembering that it's often the power, both positively and negatively of like, single individuals. Mm-hmm. I think to open up, you know, if you opened up a newsroom or like an editorial board uh, where all, many people are, you know, criticizing the New York Times for their 2016 election coverage. But if you if you put yourself in the shoes of people who are grappling at the time with, you know, how to cover this new phenomenon in politics, Donald Trump, and if you put yourself in a political campaign and if you're in my shoes, you're you're getting you're in your first political campaign. You're getting way too attached to your candidate and way too angry uh, at the negative ads that your opponents, you know, airing, and you lose your temper. And and but by being in that room, you know where those things are happening, you can identify much more and just understand kind of why things are happening the way they are, but also how you make your way and and you know, try to adapt and leave your mark. So then the Nick's analogy is great because, again, it happens to be used in the context of the UN, but in any institution, you know, I mean, on one level, well, maybe Facebook is a bad analogy because Mark Zuckerberg does have so much more power than than any one individual has at the UN, but but sometimes blaming even a corporation for something is like blaming a building, you know, and right. that you'd be much better off 
you know, taking the lid off and peering inside to see who's up, who's down, you know, how power has has shifted, what the, what the sort of internal politics of a place are, what the petty politics of the place are, what the gender dynamics in a place are, which can weirdly have effects on outcomes as well as, you know, kind of internal processes and and group dynamics. And so, you know, I think I think just sometimes books about how history is made, you know, they they just treat almost what you'd say, call in sports the box score, you know, kind of what what happens at the end of the at the end of the game after nine innings and and not the 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 books tend not to focus on the humanity, you know, of the discord or the friendships mm-hmm. that make really great things possible. Or yeah, or the just the general complexity. I want to talk about evil people and and that idea of the evil individual. But first, too, and the just going back to what you had said about wanting the book to be a solve for people who feel powerless. If you don't, there's this one section in the book that I love near the back where you talk about the doom loop and. Mm. You write, I worried about individuals experiencing a kind of doom loop in which, because they could not single-handedly fix these large problems, they would end up opting to do nothing. Whenever my own thoughts about the state of the world headed toward a similarly bleak impasse, I would brainstorm with my team about how we might shrink the change we hope to see, which I know is the Heath brothers. So like in the context, when you're when when you think about all of the things that are happening in the world right now, and I'm curious as to whether you feel like things are far more riotous than they ever have been, or it's just a virtue of how media works. Hmm. What do you, like, how do you want us all to engage? Well, I think that it's a highly personal decision for starters in the sense that I think one's empathy, interestingly, you know, you could grow up in exactly the same community with very similar backgrounds, and what triggers your empathy might be so different than what moves me. And and so there, there's definitely no one-size-fits-all idea, but since the the feeling of smallness does seem quite universal these days, I think this shrink-the-change idea, which is not mine, but which comes from this great book called Switch uh, by the Heath brothers, uh, Dan and Chip Heath, but I think it's a brilliant way uh, to think about slicing outsized problems into bite-sized bits. And mm-hmm. one of the examples I offer in the book, you know, again, because I was the president's human rights advisor and then a kind of quasi-human rights cabinet member, like that was kind of my portfolio, I was very conscious of the fact that freedom and human rights were receding in the world after the kind of high watermark of the post-Cold War explosion in civil society and in democratization we kind of reached a peak and then there's been gradual backsliding. We still have, you know, are at or near the all-time high in terms of number of democracies. But within democracies, even like our own, you you see, you know, slippage in a lot Mm -hmm. of different areas and uh, not to mention inequality and and other social and economic uh, dynamics like that. And there I was, the president, President Obama's dedicated human rights advisor, you know, in different uh, roles for eight years. And this was happening on our watch. Like, this didn't start with the current administration by any means. And so I said to my team, you know, what are we going to do about the human rights recession? And, and we, you know, we did all kinds of things like creating special rapporteurs on freedom of association so that, you know, these uh, human rights groups around the world would feel helped. 
you know, we ensured that when we were engaging the Egyptian government that the fate of uh, political prisoners or really draconian media laws was raised. And, and so I describe, you know, kind of scrambling around and trying to come up with things that might work. And at a certain point, it just started to feel so large, the problem, and our solutions just seemed so abstract almost. Like they were often about inputs, like what did you ask another government to do rather than outcomes for anybody specific. And so my t wonderful team you know, of career foreign service officers, uh, civil service officers, the deep state they're now called, but they're not the deep state, but they, <laughs> they've been working in Republican, Democratic, other administrations, but, they're, but many of them are really knowledgeable at different you know, different regions, they speak languages, they've lived in these countries. I said, what are we going to do? Let's make this more concrete. We've got a human rights recession. Why don't we try to get a bunch of people out of jail? Let's just make a list. And so this was shrinking the change. And I had passed out this chapter of this book, Switch, to my team members. And so they just took it and they run with it, ran with it. And we ended up designating 20 female political prisoners uh, from China, Venezuela, Egypt, you know, all around the world, countries that the United States had positive and large and substantial relationships with, where our ambassadors might have been very skeptical about rocking the boat and, and allowing, you know, who a country was jailing, getting in the way of, you know, warm ties, and countries that we are often criticizing for their human rights record, like a Venezuela. And we made jumbo portraits of these women. And this is more activist stuff than you normally see in government, but I would go every day and I would hang a portrait of one of these women in the lobby of the U.S. mission to the U.N., which was across is across the street from the United Nations. And we did so at a time when all the heads of state were coming, as they do every September for the U.N. General Assembly. And so the heads of state would walk or be driven by these portraits of these women, you know, one after the other popping up. And there were, at that time, this was 2015, 20 U.S. female senators in the U.S. Senate, Republican and Democrat. They threw their weight behind this campaign, uh, and it became known as hashtag free the 20. And it is so small an idea and honestly so small a contribution to a much, much larger problem. But in the end, we were able to help secure the release of 16 of the 20 women. Mm -hmm. And these women went back you know, to writing about corruption in their communities. In the case of China, it was women who'd been arrested for protesting sexual harassment, which was something the Chinese government claimed that it supported, but then locked up women who were rocking the boat in that way. And, you know, it was tempting to just feel almost the inadequacy of this effort right in the first instance. But then you think about their voices again being raised in their communities and the ripple effects that those voices will have. You, you think about... The campaign and the the light it it shone on, you know, the corrupt judges who had been in the tank when the the cases against these women were brought forward in the first place, or the draconian laws that were on the books that should never be on the books in the first place, or the NGOs or social movements that these women were a part of, and sort of the broader amplification. And then you just think about their families and their kids, right? A lot of these are working moms who've been jailed for, for exercising their voices. And so, you know, some of this is just about turning abstractions of injustice into efforts to secure concrete results for individuals. But some of it is about taking large issues, whether it's climate change or economic inequality, or in this case, the human rights recession, and shrinking your slice of it into something that you could reasonably, you know, hope to impact, not expect, because I, I confess that I did not expect we would 
that 16 of those women would end up freed, but I did think it was worth it for that set of other reasons of what it drew an exposure to and also what it showed the United States as as caring about. And so I think there's a lot in this idea of shrink the change for people now, you know, whether it's homelessness or, again, anything related to the environment, which can really overload the system because of the sense of the clock moving too quickly compared to our politics, whether it's racial injustice, you know, the state of our schools. I mean, there's just so many issues domestically, internationally that one can focus on. But you can just get overwhelmed when you think about the scale, the scale of the challenge. And to your question that you posed, I think, which is, is it worse now than ever before? You know, I think polarization is the extent of our polarization is a is a compounding factor now that makes things feel a lot harder to surmount. And, you know, a new dynamic that is contributing to polarization is echo chambers mm-hmm. and is the fact that we are entitled to our, our own opinions, but we really shouldn't be entitled to our own facts. And yet we're, we're kind of <laughs> lacking that foundational factual consensus over which we can have disagreement about what to do. Like now, you know, it's feeling like we don't have a kind of terra firma on which to have those, even yeah. those disagreements. And so I think that's what makes it feel much harder today. And there is, you know, we are experiencing more conflict around the world than we have in in three decades. And there is backsliding in democracy. I mean, so there's, you know, if it feels, <laughs> if it feels like things are going a little bit out of whack, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire for sure. But then there are also a lot of contingencies in all of this. I mean, if if our tech companies, if some of them would make different choices about, you know, how to safeguard our democracy alongside, you know, what those companies are seeking to do for their bottom lines, you know, we, we could end up with a different media backdrop. If, if the courts would go in a different direction on issues like gerrymandering or even money in politics, that would change a lot. There'd be much more of a chance, I think, of building a, a more egalitarian democracy than the one we seem to be sort of drifting toward. So I, I think we, we shouldn't exaggerate the, the obstacles, but, but definitely take note of them in order to figure out a, how to chip away. We'll get back to Ambassador Samantha Power in just a second. You've probably heard me mention that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who were looking for an adventure. Fun fact. Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company, and today the inspiration for their clothing is designed for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. This can be seen in Banana Republic's latest spring collection, a modern, versatile take on workwear. To see our favorites from the collection, head to bananarepublic.com goop. Recently on the Goop podcast, I got to sit down with Dr. Robin Burzen, an incredibly wise functional medicine physician. We talked about why she believes the scope of our healthcare system is dated and how we can bridge the gap between wellness and medicine. When Robin realized our current healthcare system was due for a major upgrade, she created Parsley Health. Parsley Health combines the best of modern medicine with a functional, holistic approach. 
Their mission is to get to the root cause of illness instead of just treating the symptoms and to ultimately help people optimize their well-being. When you sign up with Parsley Health, you can expect hour-long doctor's appointments, advanced diagnostic testing that looks at everything from your hormones to your gut to your microbiome. Their doctors work with you to create a personalized health plan that factors in nutrition, fitness, sleep, and supplementation. You'll also be paired with a health coach to help support you and keep you accountable when you need it. A Parsley Health membership includes five doctor visits as well as five health coach visits per year. And now their online care program, which is called Complete Care Anywhere, allows you to access your doctor and personal health coach from anywhere you might be. I recently signed up with Parsley Health and I really appreciate how easy the site is to navigate and how all of your tests and information is in one space. Parsley Health is offering our listeners an exclusive offer of $150 off a year-long membership. Just go to parsleyhealth.com and enter code GOOP. That's P-A-R-S-L-E-Y health.com and use code GOOP to get $150 off a year-long membership. Back to my chat with Ambassador Power. It feels like it's not only an echo chamber, it's just an echo gaslighting chamber. And one of the things that seems to be happening, particularly in this country, is sort of this orchestration of like a fear campaign. And it seems like we're all, for all of the reasons that you cited, whether it's economic or it's environmental or it is because there seems to be no basis for truth, it's, I think we're all operating from a place of fear. And that's, it's hard to get out of it or to to pull each other out of it. And I think for moms, just thinking about your empathy, which I've, I've, of course, related to as well, because my I always had a fair amount, but when I had kids, you know, it just ratchets mm. it up so aggressively. And I know throughout the book, like, you're focused on the suffering of children around the globe in particular. But it's, I feel like women are the ones who are going to solve these, pro- like, mo- moms, like, high empathy is going to solve a lot of this stuff, but it's hard to, because I feel like we're the ones who are in some ways, most the victim, we have the most to lose weirdly, or or we're the, or maybe I'm speaking just only for myself where it's easy to put me into a fear state. Well, I think fear is extremely powerful and it, and it has caused people to tighten up and to tense mm-hmm. up and to when you when you feel fear the appeal of people who promise order uh, goes way up <laughs> in history and there are a lot of people promising order who aren't delivering order but nonetheless you know the the use of fear as a political strategy i mean you know it's not new right the mm-hmm. lyndon johnson ran the daisy ad you know of a little girl you know picking petals off a off a daisy and then a nuclear bomb goes off in the background and, and basically says, if you vote for Barry Goldwater, you know, your children will be nuked. Uh, and that was, you know, what, like a half century ago. I mean, the, the, you know, people's appropriation of fear and, and instigation of fear as a way of presenting themselves as a kind of simple solution, you know, has been with us. But what's interesting is I think in with the echo chamber dimension of it, it's hard for voices to get in and be heard, and and they're not even seen as credible, right? Unless they come from the same, for lack of a better word, tribe. You know, it could be a political tribe or, or or something else. And so, 
I think it's it's been it's you know absent Walter Cronkite or some you know kind of centrist <laughs> voices who have credibility on both sides. You know we're we're sort of in a game without umpires at the present. It feels like, but you know at the end of the day, I think people also you mentioned like where does the solution lie? I mean, 2019, the year that just passed w- was a year in which we saw more than more political protests than we've seen in more countries in generations. And interestingly, it's hard to get the statistics across, you know, particularly protests in some developing countries, but it looks like the vast majority of people coming out to protest in most countries were women, mm-hmm. including in a country like Sudan, which I have worked in and on for much of my career. And if you had told me two years ago that Sudan was going to erupt in protests that would bring down a leader who'd been indicted for genocide over what he had done in Darfur and that it would be principally women who would constitute the protests and that indeed, you know, people who had been victimized in an individual whose family had been victimized in the genocide in Darfur would become the justice minister within two years. I mean, I would have I would have thought that that was very, very far fetched. And and so you do sense more and more people kind of trying to take the political destiny of their communities into their own hands. And women who are parents certainly see the stakes of issues mm-hmm. like climate change, see the urgency of it for the younger generations. I think all working parents or all parents who see who have to answer the questions that our kids are posing to us about how we could have let this happen, you know, feel an enhanced urgency on a, on an issue like that. And, you know, I guess what what has to happen though as we go forward is that has to be turned into even low-grade political participation. I mean, fewer women voted in the 2016 election than voted in 2012 even though the stakes in the 2016 election were were really really high for issues that concerned women here and and around the world young people voted you know in abysmal numbers in 2016 but the 2018 young people voting numbers were way up from the previous midterm election and so hopefully there's some learning you know about what mere alienation um, you know uh, buys you because it just if if all you do is is, you know, see the darkness and, and you know, can't find your own pathway to contribute, you know, it, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, alas. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, it seems unlikely that there will be much complacency before November. I mean, it feels like it's as heightened as it's ever been, if not more so. When, when you're, as someone who's been in the, who's, who's assessed these genocides and massive global issues and incredibly evil regimes, like thinking about Assad, what's happening? Is it the power? Is it one person's ability to somehow create, again, maybe it's built on fear? I don't, how, is it, is it groups of people conspiring? Like what, how, how does this happen? Like how does something like Assad and Syria how does how does that happen? I mean, I know that's a complicated question, and I know it's not as simple as removing one person because then the aftermath can be equally abysmal. Yes, no, it's a great question and complex, I suppose. But but I what I would start with is what happens before the moment in which evil takes full form, right? Namely, you know the the kind of background conditions 
the enabling environment, you might say. And so almost inevitably, an absence of a free media, an absence of checks and balances on the centralization of power, whether checks and balances of the kind we have in America across our different branches of government or kind of bottom-up checks, civil society or local government, state government. And so so that's the enabling environment. I think without when you when you have those checks in place, it's much harder for an individual just to concentrate power in a manner that allows him to to perpetrate great crimes of the kind that you've that you're asking about. And then, you know, I think the sort of a ruthlessness, an indifference to shame, so no personal sense of morality or shame, but also, you know, international condemnation just kind of washes off the back. What's what's interesting about some of the big cases of genocide that I, that I studied um, before, long before I went into government, um, but was how often in order to get foot soldiers to perpetrate, for example, mm-hmm. something like the Rwandan genocide, or the, which occurred in 1994, where 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. By their neighbors. By their neighbors, yeah. So, so there are a couple, to get those foot soldiers, a couple things are required. I mean, first of all, back to fear, to really convince your would-be foot soldiers that if you do not kill, if you do, if you do not perpetrate what you would have, you know, a month ago or six months ago viewed as evil, if you don't do that, it'll be done to you. And so always a self-defense rationale. I mean, Hitler, Mm -hmm. why did he invade Poland, right? Because of the threat, the encroachment on the German people and so forth. It's nonsense, you know, almost all of the time. The other thing that you see in so many of these cases where neighbor turns against neighbor is drugs and alcohol. I don't mean like the habit of drug and alcohol, but people numbing themselves to perpetrate crimes that deep down, again, they know that they will come to regret. And and so while the leader may be inoculated and, and removed in some way from from victimizing his people, those who actually have to, to kill their neighbor with a machete or who feel instructed to kill their neighbor with a machete or to mow down 8,000 men and boys, as happened in in eastern Bosnia in 1995, which was a a foundational event in my life because I covered that as a journalist in my, you know, I was 24 years old and and this Mm. thing happened. But to to understand, you know, how many of those people are just downing bottles of vodka and rum before they start firing at the people they'd gone to school with. So they've told themselves, if I don't do this, these people are coming after me, but they still need something to to dull the the human sensibilities that 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 live on yeah to dissociate yes dissociation um, exactly yeah so when you think about 2020 and you think about like do you and i know we're in unprecedented as you said sort of the extent of our polarization is extreme like do you see a path toward some sort of reconciliation within the U.S., or do you feel like we're, like, headed for a civil war? <laughs> you know, I think reconciliation is is imperative. I think that we've missed, our institutions have missed some opportunities to, to speed that up. You know, everything from Facebook's willingness to, you know, to run lies paid for by political campaigns, that's not going to do reconciliation any favors, to the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision 
turning its back on its role to to protect one person, one vote, and and really true enfranchisement in its gerrymandering decision uh, to look the other way for these maps that, you know, kind of mm-hmm. look ridiculous, you know, these loop-the-loops, which allow effectively state legislators or members of Congress to choose their voters rather than voters to choose their elected representatives. So, you know, these opportunities, it's it's a shame to have missed them, but the I think the reconciliation will come when platforms of fear and fear-mongering are rejected by a majority of people. I mean, the, the last election, which proved, you know, which has ushered in an even more divisive phase in our history, you know, that election was settled by 78,000 votes yeah. spread across three states. And it's it's easy to forget that because, you know, it's been such a, you know, a, a 180 reversal on so many fronts, but just these are the razor-thin margins. And I'm not saying, you know, again, necessarily that a Democrat winning would bring around, you know, by, by any means, that it would bring, you know, motherhood and apple pie, you know, back to the center. But, you know, the the one thing that, that works better than anything in fostering a sense of unity and in causing party identification to fade is shared works and is service. Mm. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in community service. I, I wish it were something that, you know, that more people in our in our communities had the chance to to participate in. But if you could imagine a majority, you know, that, that would in, hug the center, let's say on the right and the left, feeling exhausted and disillusioned, let's say, by the, the way in which we, we, we seem to be talking past one another, you, you could imagine service being a place of entry. And, you know, there's a reason that mayors, for example, are far, tend to be much less polarized, for example, at their national mayor's conference every year. Republicans are learning from Democrats and vice versa. And, you know, there's there's just not anywhere near the same heat or noise it's it's focused on hey what what worked in terms of transportation in your downtown and and you know how exactly is that clean energy project working and and did the solar panel you know have you managed with solar to replace the jobs that are lost because the coal plant was shut down and and so just you know when you have individuals who are, whether at the citizen level or at the elected official level or in NGOs or civil society who are thinking about just concrete problems, I think that lends itself to getting out of the, you know, the the pitched battle mode and, and mindset that many of us find ourselves in these days. I wish we could almost strip away the, I wish we could strip away party designations and just make everyone run on platforms and issues, because then I think it would force people right. to listen. And I think so many of us, like I think about moms demand action and the progress that they've made on a state level for safe common sense gun laws. And that's, you know, it's probably primarily Democrats, but there are a lot of Republicans who are working on those issues. And so I feel like two people, like we kind of all want, I mean, many of us want the same things. And yet we, it's like, you can't even listen because it's, it is so polarizing. Yeah. And as you say, it may be that the two-party system, for this reason, you know, that there ends up being a gravitation to something else or 
or better yet, again, something that is cause-driven. I mean, things can shift in a hurry. Uh, we saw, you know, on 9-11, a very traumatic and, and catastrophic event for our country, mm-hmm. creating a kind of unity that, that hadn't, that was slipping away, I think, even before recent years, you know, slipping away before 9-11. So events like that, you know, the rise of China, I think, is a very complicating factor in the world around us and is going to have big implications even on what goes on inside our democracy. And I I hope it's not, you know, that people don't take this in the direction of a new Cold War, but it but it can also focus the mind on 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 the necessity of more cooperation across the aisle on R&D and on infrastructure and on technology and if you know what I mean because because that's a in China of course it's forced unity uh, because there's only the the diktat of of one man an authoritarian and a, and a leader mm-hmm. for life but there you know the the sort of nimbleness of a system that can plan ahead uh, you know, where big expenditures can be undertaken with longer-term cycles, those are going to become comparative advantages to a country like China if we can't if we can't get our act together as well. And so, so there, you know, these kinds of dynamics even outside our own family dysfunction, they can <laughs> they can focus the mind if nothing else. What what are you, do you imagine a day when you'll go back to government? I would love to serve again in some fashion. You know, I do. Being a citizen again is wonderful. I teach hundreds of Harvard students about social change, legal change, political change, revolutionary cascades. You know, why does history surprise us so often? You know, we have all these studies about trend lines and the intelligence community around the world spending billions of dollars. Political consultants thought they knew what was what going into 2016. And and so to understand a little bit better the contingencies of history and, and to try to learn from them, but yet definitely to be in a position to apply some of those lessons again in public service, I would love that. But I also feel a responsibility to to share with young people what I've learned so they can avoid some of my mistakes and <laughs> and feel, you know, that I what I noticed again when I left government was I suddenly had this fancy CV, you know, where I'd been UN ambassador and had all these bodyguards and represented my country. And I I noticed that my students started to see me in a different way as if somehow my advice was no longer as valid because I had operated at this rarefied level. But one of the reasons I wrote The Education of an Idealist the way I did in a very personal and vulnerable way was, you know, to remind people that you don't have to have all the answers to give it a go uh, of of trying to make a difference. And you can fall massively, publicly flat on your face and become a global villain, as I managed to do (laughs) on occasion, and still somehow bounce back from that. And and so, you know, I want to serve again, but I also feel if I can find a way to draw on, on what I've learned through my service by, by telling stories, not in some wonky way or, or you know, dreary way, but to, to, to show the exhilaration that you can feel in, in using the tools of public policy to, to improve lives. I mean, that role of lighting that fire, it's a role others performed for me when I was younger. And, and so for now, you know, when I'm not serving, that's, that's my way of trying to expand the community of people who feel like there's there's plenty to do and there is, as I say in, in my my book and my mantra in life is there's always something one can do. And so to, to just remind people that just because you can't solve the whole problem 
there may still be a slice of it that you can chop off and and make make headway on and even if you can't change the world which we all you know grow up hoping to do one day you can change many individual worlds and and sometimes we forget that Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ambassador Samantha Power. For more on her, make sure to pick up a copy of her book, The Education of an Idealist. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.